Welcome to the Financing Social Entrepreneurs podcast. My name is Fraggle Byrne. Every week I speak to people who fund and support social innovation in different ways. Grant providers, impact investors of various kinds, angel investors, foundations, family offices and more. They talk frankly about how they work, how they make investment, grant and funding decisions, what they will invest in or support and what they cannot. They talk about the pros and cons of different sources of funding, share lessons and insights, and provide invaluable advice for any social entrepreneur or innovator looking to build and finance a sustainable social business. As any good organization, an organization that is part of a larger global social movement, we continue to evolve and respond to the forces of the day. Um, but still, as at the time of our founding, our competency and our central um, work remains our annual fellowship um, selection process. Prior to 2006, virtually all of the applications that we received for the fellowship year, virtually all of the fellows that we selected each year, including me as a 1992 Equity Green Fellow, were starting pretty traditional um, nonprofit entities, sort of incorporating, at least in the U.S., as 501c3s. So we were um, true nonprofit um, uh, charitable organizations. Beginning in 2006, we began to see an uptick uh, in the number of submissions that were proposing for-profit or hybrid um, corporate forms. And each year since 2006, we've seen a steady uptick in the number of applicants proposing these new corporate forms to the point where this past year, 50% of our applicant pool were proposing just such new corporate forms. I'm very pleased today to introduce Cheryl Dorsey and take this opportunity to celebrate Echoing Green's unique 30-year role supporting social entrepreneurs. Echoing Green is a leading global non-profit that provides seed funding and technical assistance to emerging social entrepreneurs with ideas for social change. The organisation is celebrating its 30th anniversary in 2017. Over that time, it has forged a community of global pioneers, now over 700 strong, and played a unique role helping accelerate these leaders to impact the world. Cheryl Dorsey has been at the helm since 2002 and has overseen its development into a leading global non-profit. Thank you very much, Cheryl, for taking the time to speak to the podcast today. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity. So it's a very auspicious uh, occasion to have an opportunity to speak to you now, Cheryl, uh, your 30th anniversary. Indeed. Thank you. It's an important milestone. We were founded in 1987 by the leadership of General Atlantic, a leading growth equity firm, and they really were uh, one of the pioneering um, groups and group of leaders behind the field of social entrepreneurship, and um, really grateful to their vision and wisdom for creating this very special organization. Great. And, and what was their initial idea? So Echoing Green was founded um, from the work and civic leadership of the senior leadership of General, uh, General Atlantic, recognizing three things. One was um, the um, application of business principles and practices to the social sector 
offered an opportunity to apply what they were doing so successfully in the business world towards social good. So sort of the blurring of sectoral boundaries, which is one of the hallmarks of social entrepreneurship, was very much in play. And in the way that General Atlantic was spotting, uh, investing, and supporting entrepreneurs, sort of watching the ability to achieve a financial return on investment, the hypothesis was by doing that same sort of talent spotting, backing of the talent, and then helping those organizations and those leaders grow, you could actually achieve a similarly um, uh, large social return on investment. So I think that was one of the bedrock principles. I think the second idea was the notion that young people as next generation talent, as sort of the fuel and catalyst of change has been sort of a defining feature of all great social movements across history. And the idea of investing in young talent who wanted to take on some of the greatest challenges of the day and some of our toughest social challenges was actually a really smart um, bet to make. And then I would say sort of the last bedrock principle behind General Atlantic's vision was um, a recognition that something was percolating um, in this newfangled endeavor called social entrepreneurship. I think a really interesting part of Echoing Green's history um, that your listeners will be interested in is sort of the personal connections between one of the key founders of the field of social entrepreneurship, Bill Drayton, who you know is the founder of Ashoka, um, and some of the founders of General Atlantic. Um, they met while they all worked at McKinsey as consultants, and as the General Atlantic um, leaders, Steve Denning and Ed Cohen, went off to found General Atlantic, continued to follow and support Bill Drayton's vision and work as he was setting up Ashoka in the early 90s, and they were intrigued by his vision and belief in the power of social entrepreneurs to fundamentally change uh, the social sector um, and started backing his work and decided to uh, become part of this movement by founding Echoing Green. So it's an interesting um, story and narrative. Absolutely. They showed a, a tremendous amount of foresight. Indeed, I, I agree, and I think that's what good civic leaders do, and General Atlantic uh, are among some of the finest that we've had the uh, pleasure to work with. Great, and can you tell me what the organization does now? I know it's changed over time. You've got the grant program, you're doing uh, many other things, including uh, supporting impact investment. Yes, and again, I think as any good organization, an organization that is part of a larger global social movement, we continue to evolve and respond to the forces of the day. Um, but still, as at the time of our founding, our core competency and our central um, work remains our annual fellowship um, selection process. So each year we go out into the world and um, ask for a call for submissions of social business plans from around the world. This past year we received close to 3,000 submissions from over 160 countries around the world. And then we begin the arduous, very difficult process of vetting and culling those initial submissions um, and providing um, pretty rigorous due diligence to ultimately select anywhere from the top 25 to 40 
new social enterprises for investment. Um, and once we select those leaders as they begin their trajectory in launching these social enterprises, we then, throughout the duration of this two-year fellowship, do what we can to provide them with deep leadership development support to help these leaders go farther, faster, as well as help them launch these social enterprise organizations. And we've got good um, track record to show that um, after our investment, our social enterprises um, within one year of funding will raise 10x our initial funding. So we're proud of the work we do to not only select these leaders, but also in the earliest stages of launching their enterprises, helping them get farther, faster. And then over the course of the last 10 years in particular, um, we've begun to develop more programming to better build out the social entrepreneurship ecosystem or sort of more um, robust field building work. And you alluded, Fergal, to the impact investing, investing work that we're doing. We also have a number of other programs that we now run to support not only our fellows, but the field writ large. Um, the impact investing program, is in response to the growing number of applicants and fellows that are developing for-profit and hybrid social enterprises. 2016 marked the first time in Echoing Green's history that the majority of our portfolio uh, is comprised of for-profit and hybrid social enterprises, such a milestone for us. So in response to that trend, we've begun developing um, investment readiness tools for these early stage social entrepreneurs, um, try to begin doing work with investors to help them better understand these early stage high risk social enterprise models. Also try to contribute to the field by providing the kinds of research and data that are required to build more robust, mature markets. And again, we do see the social enterprise marketplace is still pretty um, nascent, so doing our best to make it more robust. Uh, much more work to be done in the impact investing space, but we're proud of that uh, work we're doing with our impact investing fellows. We're also trying to work with um, other young leaders, whether they are in business or in the social sector, um, to contribute to the social innovation movement. We run an experiential board training program called Direct Impact where we work with rising young civic business leaders to train them on how to provide good governance support to social enterprises that at the end of their experiential process then place them on the boards of our social entrepreneurs organizations. We're really excited about that um, that uh, business leadership development opportunity. Um, and then finally, as all fellowship programs know, um, you spend your day sort of creating new fellows year in and year out, and then at some point you reach a critical mass where you not only have um, re regener regenerating fellowship classes each year, but you begin to see uh, robust alumni communities. And we've begun over the past 10 years to build out programming to better support our alumni, recognizing that this, le this leadership cadre is actually a very powerful community uh, of change, if leveraged appropriately, can really um, create ever greater levels of change. So we're doing a lot, uh, and we're really excited to see what comes next. That's a fantastic vision, Cheryl, and uh, a unique uh, role, I think. Again and again, when I speak to social entrepreneurs for the podcast, I ask them, you know, who's helped you along the way? What, what, what support and resources have you got? And again and again, 
Echoing Green is 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 a, the organisation that most name along the way, and it's a it's an amazing resource. And as you say, you start to see the fruit of this in so many different ways. Very exciting, as you say. Talk about the uh, growth in uh, for profit uh, social entrepreneurship, and maybe we can talk about that a little later. I just like to come back to this question about uh, the the financial support you provide for the. Uh, uh, fellows and how that works and what the logic of that is and uh, the importance I think of grant uh, funding for social entrepreneurs. Yeah, yes indeed um, and, and thank you for that question. Um, again as I mentioned we um, uh, provide you know early stage capital again we're investing in next-gen talent as they're um, about to launch their social enterprises. So we are early stage in every um, dimension. So we're investing in, in, in young talent, mostly early stage talent, high risk new business models. So although we don't provide a lot of capital, um, and, and for your listeners, they should know that we provide um, anywhere from 80 to 90,000 US dollars over the course of the two-year fellowship. Um, and while it is not a lot of money, I think it matters in two regards. Um, the first is that it is um, early stage high-risk capital, and we know that's hard to get. So just having that tranche of early stage capital to deploy as the entrepreneur best sees fit is super important. Um, and the fact that it's also patient capital um, also is is quite important um, in that it um, is uh, really, you know, no cost debt essentially. Um, although with our for-profit fellows, it's now sort of a convertible note that has some terms attached to it. But it, it's sort of the the best deal you can get when you're just starting out um, as an early stage social entrepreneur. I should also say that in addition to the cash, we provide an array of in-kind supports to our social entrepreneurs that we find and think are equally valuable providing our fellows with health insurance so they can um, sort of take this great leap of faith to try to make this entrepreneurial venture work. We also provide access to an array of skills building conferences over the duration of a four-year period um, as an Echoing Green Fellow, so fully subsidizing our fellows' opportunity to come together in this peer-to-peer -peer network to learn from one another, to share information, contacts, contacts, best practices, et cetera, incredibly important, as well as access to our network. So, um, you know, on face value, although, again, we don't provide a lot of capital, I think the timing of it is incredibly important, and then sort of the in-kind supports. Um, and we've sort of calculated over the years that we believe that the value of this um, fellowship program um, is probably at about, you know, 250K, 250,000 U.S. dollars over the two-year fellowship which is not a bad package for very early stage social entrepreneurs. That's great. That's great. Um, you mentioned the the uh, for-profit and not-for-profit. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? I mean, the growth in for-profit, it, it seems, uh, as you say, it's, it's an area where there's a lot of change, a lot of growth. There's a lot of overlap. There's hybrid models. There's uh, organizations where which are set up as not-for-profit, which own for-profit arms and so forth. A lot seems to be going on there. What's your reflection on that growth? Yes, I have to say that um, Equine Green is a very interesting um, community and organization because of where we sit in the ecosystem, because we're sort of 
uh, very early stage, high risk, really looking for next generation innovations, you really do as an organization become a trend spotter and you see very interesting field evolutions happening first. And impact investing was just such a trend. Um, prior to 2006, virtually all of the applications that we received for the fellowship year, virtually all of the fellows that we selected each year, including me as a 1992 Echo and Green Fellow, were starting pretty traditional um, nonprofit entities, sort of incorporating, at least in the U.S., as 501c3s. So we were um, true nonprofit um uh, charitable organizations. Beginning in 2006, we began to see an uptick uh, in the number of submissions that were proposing for-profit or hybrid um, corporate forms. And each year since 2006, we've seen a steady uptick in the number of applicants proposing these new corporate forms to the point where this past year, 50% of our applicant pool were proposing just such new corporate forms, and 57% of the fellows that we chose were, were running hybrid or for-profit enterprises. So I think underneath that really interesting trend is um, a couple of things. One is this um, revelation or realization that you know, there's just simply not enough philanthropic capital to solve our greatest social and environmental problems at scale. So recognizing that having to tap into the capital markets is going to be a key strategy moving forward was an, an innovation, um, a, a paradigm shift for a lot of these uh, young social entrepreneurs. And then I think secondly is a testament to how the field has broadened its aperture to um, invite new agents of change in. More and more of the young people with whom we're interfacing are business school grads or who have come from um, entrepreneurial circles or business circles and who are dedicating their careers um, to social change. So a really fascinating set of um, trends. Absolutely. A basic question, perhaps. What do you think are a couple of the real benefits of having a business approach to social problems? So, um, great question. Um, and I would say there are a couple of benefits of um, the business approach. I would say number one comes um, with the ability to bring um business skills, financial acumen to the work at hand. And I think that um, bringing a business mindset as well as business experience and track record um, brings a particular type of discipline. I'm not saying it's better or paramount to um, the work of, of those of us who have exclusively spent our time in the social sector, but I would say it is an addition and a benefit um, to um sort of rationalizing all the hard work that comes with standing up a new enterprise. So I think that's one. And then I think a second benefit is sort of um, embedded in sort of the, the hallmark feature of social entrepreneurship, which is this notion of the blurring of sectoral boundaries, sort of breaking down the silos between, you know, the market, um, civil society, and the state and having more adherents or more participants from sort of the business side of the ledger, I think allows social entrepreneurship to bring um, new alliances and new partnerships and opportunities for collaboration to bear. And at a moment when our social challenges are increasingly complex, 
um, and difficult to um, disentangle, having more voices and points of view is only a good thing, I think. Absolutely. And the proliferation of new business models and new ideas, and not all of them are going to succeed, but uh, the fertile area for change. A question I, I should ask is, there's a lot of money coming into the impact sector. And it, it seems to be the case that much of that, um, certainly a significant amount, is looking for, you know, near market rates of returns. Now, that's not all, all uh, true for all of the, the money, clearly. Do you think this has an effect on uh, the kinds of projects or the approaches of social entrepreneurs? And can you talk a little bit about that, Cheryl? I think that's a really uh, interesting question. And I um, think time will tell. So from Echoing Green's vantage point, um, the I would say the rhetoric and certainly the interest level around impact investing is high. But I think there is a disconnect in terms of level of interest, but um, capital being placed, especially in the earliest stages of the social you know, impact or impact investing space. We um, see a very robust pipeline of early stage social entrepreneurs with you know, really interesting ideas for um, social impact businesses, and they are, they are struggling to raise capital. And again, I think there are a couple of reasons for that. I think number one, you, you hear this common refrain, and I'm sure you hear it, you often hear for funders that this deal flow is not investment ready. So there's a disconnect between um, sort of the state of readiness of the enterprise and investors' tolerance level to place the capital in such enterprises. I would also say there's, um, we often see our entrepreneurs and investors talking past one another where the investors do not understand the risk profile of these um, social enterprises and the entrepreneurs don't necessarily understand where investors um, are along the return uh, continuum and spectrum. Um, and I, I think this is sort of all the messiness of making a new market. Um, and I think one of the things we're trying to work on as an investor, sort of a very early stage investor, who, by the way, is really committed to social impact first businesses. We, we do not have a financial return um, in our selection criteria, but social impact first is paramount. How do we sort of tee these particular types of businesses up to get uh, up to speed that allows them um, to access impact investing capital? And I think the jury's still out for us. We, we don't, we're still in the very earliest days of trying to figure out what this uh, marketplace looks like. Great. That's very interesting. That's very interesting. Now, just talking about the grants for a moment, Cheryl, very difficult decisions, clearly, for, with respect to fellows. You clearly have to turn down some people with wonderful ideas, some very inspiring people. Can you talk a little bit about some of the projects, the, some of the fellows that you do end up taking, some, maybe the criteria, or, or it's maybe a question you've been asked uh, again and again, but what advice do you have? for uh, social entrepreneurs generally looking for this kind of funding about about their business? Big question, I know, so many different kinds of projects, so many different kinds of people. I don't know whether one or two uh, uh, distilled uh, 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 pieces of advice you might have. Yes, yes, and we, in fact, you're exactly right. We do indeed um, get these questions all the time. Um, so this will not, it, it probably satisfied many, many of your listeners, but I'll sort of share 
um, just a few uh, tips or um, a bit of our perspective. So one is, and this will be a bit um, jarring, is that I often tell young people um, in the audiences uh, that I speak before, I, I tell young people, you know, not to start a new social enterprise, right? My best advice to them is don't start something new. Yes. And I yep. say that for a couple of reasons. Number one is that um, young people um, who I'm so impressed with, and I do believe in next generation talent and leadership, this generation in particular has conflated success with founding something and becoming an entrepreneur. And I think that is a terrible lesson um, that the social entrepreneurship field has engendered. Um, success should not be conflated with being a founder. Success should be about um, driving social impact in the world and um, making young people understand how to optimize and maximize their unique talents and skills and deploy them in the way that best makes sense for them and for making the world a better place. For a select few, that could be um, starting something new, but entrepreneurs are just a rare breed for a whole host of reasons. You know, it's sort of a, a, physiologic, a physiologic and temperamental um, mindset and skill set that I think just amongst human beings is sort of a, a rare a, a rare um, amalgam of, of skills and characteristics that most of us don't have, and that's just fine. Um, so the lesson is not trying to be a social entrepreneur, but figuring out how to make and optimize your contribution to society. Um, do your homework, especially as an early stage social entrepreneur. I guarantee um, every young person uh, that I talk to that there is some organization that is tackling the problem you care most about. And it is your job to do that competitive analysis, deeply understand the landscape, spend some time with those organizations, um, and most of those organizations that are up and running have more assets, more um, data, more of a track record, uh, more partnership opportunities than you will have as a lone entrepreneur. Um, and I don't think it's a bad idea to learn with those organizations, but if you really in your heart of hearts believe that you've identified a market failure that no organization has identified and you have done your best to try to um, build partnerships with existing organizations so you can tap into those accumulated assets, but if there's no opportunity to do that, then in fact, I do think it makes sense um, to think about starting something new. Um, and... Um, once you've done that, um, entrepreneurship is a lonely business. Um, so a, a couple of tips to make it a little less lonely. Um, identifying champions, a kitchen cabinet that um, can provide advice and counsel is very important. Um, being doctrinaire about very little um, because flexibility and having the ability to pivot and iterate is incredibly important, especially for early stage social entrepreneurs um, and always being respectful of the customers you serve. The customer is right. Um, and in our sector, the customer is often the beneficiary. So always remaining respectful um, and in service of that beneficiary. I think those are a couple of pieces of advice that, that some may find helpful. 
That's very helpful. Thank you, Cheryl. You you touched on an interesting point there, and one of the motivations, really, from uh, in part for starting a podcast originally in the social uh, business arena, I suppose, is learning from uh, other social entrepreneurs. And clearly, at the heart of what you do is this great community. I'm just wondering a little bit about partnering and uh, what role you see for that. Uh, certainly, you know, compared to conventional business, uh, for various reasons, you don't see the same kind of you know mergers or that kind of thing. But just generally, do you think that uh, there is more potential for various kinds of partnerships, working with other social organizations, addressing similar kinds of problems? Such a great question and such an important observation. And I, and I would, this is a, a problem, um, a systemic problem across the social sector. Um, and certainly in the U.S. context, um, you know, there are, probably close to, what, 2 million or so nonprofit organizations. Uh, most are under-resourced um, and lack capacity. It's an incredibly fragmented sector, um, which leads to a lack of optimization um, and inability to really drive social impact at scale. I would posit that's probably true in, in most contexts. Um, and I think that um, our sector does not do enough to incentivize um, or provide the information or knowledge needed to promote better collaboration or partnership. I do think that we see in the social sector the beginnings of uh, recognition for the need to collaborate more, partner more. I'm sure you're familiar with sort of the FSG work, Mark Kramer's work around collective impact. I think that's an incredibly important nod um, around um, that 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 we're that social change is so complex, so hard to achieve that we're not going to get there unless we start to work together and set collective goals and aims. I also sort of like the way that um, the authors of Forces for Good, two Equine Green alums, Heather McLeod Grant and Leslie Crutchfield, authored a very important a book called Forces for Good, which was built on the methodology of a Stanford professor, Jim Collins, on um, the sort of the principles and practices of some of the best functioning uh, nonprofit uh, uh, organizations, high impact nonprofits. And one of the six practices in Forces for Good was this notion of um, sort of um, building alliances, co-optition, and recognizing that you are always part of a larger movement. So whether at a tactical level that's about partnership or at a more sustained level about mergers, um, it's how do you think about yourself in relationship to the larger ecosystem. Um, not enough mergers. We typically see them, at least in the U.S. context, in financial downturn, so that's sort of a, a negative incentive that gets a lot of organizations uh, to think about merger. But I do think it's something that our field needs to think much more about moving moving forward. Right, that's very interesting. I keep an eye open. Yes, I have heard about the FSG and, and a couple of those other uh, initiatives that, that you mentioned, uh, but clearly uh, just very important. But I guess on the other hand, uh, a lot of, uh, as you say, it's it's a lonely business. A lot of social entrepreneurs are, are down in the ditches, digging away, working on their problems. And, and you know, it's uh, considerable, uh, takes considerable amount of energy and focus, really, doesn't it? Um, and uh, adding, a, adding on an, another layer of collaboration uh, is, is certainly another kind of challenge. 
that's such a great point. And, you know, it is sort of sort of in the tactical, in the weeds of the day-to-day work. You're exactly right that I would say, you know, quite often social entrepreneurs are not averse to that kind of partnership, but they're a real bandwidth. Um, constraints, and I think that's a that's a very good point. Now, just talking a little bit about uh, the, the uh, maybe a very big topic again, but just to get a, a, maybe a couple of thoughts on this on the appropriateness of different kinds of funding. And I know I, I've spoken to some people uh, who, uh, for example, uh, suggested that grants might not be uh, appropriate for for profits. And uh, there are questions, I think, uh, certainly in the minds of many social entrepreneurs, about what is the right kind of capital to 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 help them on their journey uh clearly a big topic many different kinds of organizations different stages of development in different contexts i don't know are there one or two thoughts that you have on that question yes and i think this is a um really important topic of conversation amongst um social entrepreneurs who are running hybrid and for-profit and sort of it is under the the lens of sort of blended capital and capital stacks, um, and, and how you how you think about it. Um, you know, I would direct um, some of your listeners to the Echoing Green website, and it's just echoinggreen.org. And in the past couple of years, we've tried to put together a number of um, publications and case studies um, that impact investing social entrepreneurs can refer to um, and determining when um, different types of capital make sense. Um, I would say, you know, grant capital as a form of patient capital, um, obviously is, is something to consider. And we see a lot of our social entrepreneurs relying on uh, grant capital in the early stages um, and then trying to, to navigate um, impact investors um, and trying to figure out their um, sector and, and business model interests and their return uh, profiles. I think it is very messy, very hard. Uh, my colleague, Min Pease, who I said runs our impact investing program, is much more knowledgeable than I, but I would say um, that uh, taking a look at some of our publications is probably not a bad next step and referring to some of the well-trod ground that our fellows have traveled and other social entrepreneurs to build their capital stacks is probably a good next step. And then, you know, the last thing I, w- I will say in relationship um, is there is often the imperative and the, um, the, the idea of sort of chasing capital um, because you're under the gun, you're trying to make payroll, it's very hard to get this early stage capital, but recognizing the constraints and the handcuffs that come with different types of capital is part of the analysis that all you know, for-profit and hybrid social entrepreneurs have to contend with because the expectations of these different types of capital have to be factored in um, to their calculus um, and quite often 
you know, our social entrepreneurs are just looking um, at, you know, at, at the check as opposed to the constraints that come with that particular type of capital. So, so it's complicated, and I, I don't know if I've shed any light, um, but there has to be some thought in terms of how you think about the blend of capital, how you stack it, um, and what the relationships with different types of impact investors, whether on the grant side or on the investment side, are going to mean um, for your work moving forward. Right. That sounds like good advice, as you say. Um, horses for courses, the no simple answer is it's complex. Yep. complex area maybe one last question uh, and uh, uh, just to what what's your vision for echoing green in the next five to ten years Cheryl oh big, big question of course um, so uh, you know the the 30th anniversary milestone as you mentioned is a nice opportunity to step back and take stock and not only look at um, from whence you come but also where you're going and we are uh, at that moment um, and I, I will say it's a work, work in progress. Please check in with us and, uh, and see where we're going in the next couple of years. But I think the, the direction will be predicated on a couple of, um, trends and ideas that we have about what the field will look like in the next 30 years. So number one, um, is this whole notion of impact investing, right? We think it's an incredibly interesting trend. We think that um, impact investing will rise or fall on our ability to make more capital available to more social entrepreneurs with more types of business models. So the work on uh, the work of turning on the spigot on both the demand and the supply side, I think, is a really important body of work that the field of social entrepreneurship needs to get its arms around. I would say that's one um, piece of work that Equine Green will be spending time on in the next decade or so. I think another um, opportunity for us is related to Equine Green's role as a really important talent spotter um, in the field of social entrepreneurship. And I think we all know that talent is equally distributed around the world, but opportunity is not. So part of the work of at least Echoing Green is starting to build the supply lines of talent, sort of the human capital um, highway system or architecture or infrastructure to build a steady and more seamless on-ramp of the best and brightest talent dedicated to solving the world's most complex problems in the decades to come. And there's a whole body of work that goes along with building that human capital architecture and infrastructure. Um, another piece of work I think that is of interest to all of us is sort of this moment in history in which we find ourselves, whether it's Brexit, whether it's the recent U.S. election, I think globally we are all seeing um, a tremendous backlash against the establishment, whether that's defined as the political establishment, sort of structures and systems that have long sustained societies, and a precipitous drop in the trust um, and verity of institutions. Um, and along with that backlash, also sort of a backlash against elite responsibility. And it has led, I think, to a very... A precarious, if not dangerous, moment. Um, but I think that at a moment where we see the impact of negative disruption, 
social entrepreneurship, I think, actually is a wonderful example of positive disruption and how can individuals in their communities sort of take their frustration as well as their gifts and individual efficacy and agency to actually drive more positive disruption. And I think it's incumbent on the uh, the field of social entrepreneurship to build more spaces and opportunities to plug in individuals who are interested in positive disruption. Um, I think that will help sort of, re- sort of release some of this frustration in a positive way, but I think it will also lead to the building of new institutions for the 21st century that work better for our more complex and interconnected world. That's a fantastic vision. Uh, Cheryl, a lot of optimism built in there as well, and I think it's a time for optimism. And I'd like to thank you very much for taking the time to speak to me today for all the great work at Econ Green and wish you the very best of success over the coming years. Thank you so much. Again, we're, we're honored to be included in the conversation and appreciate you taking the time and um, hope your listeners will um, take a look at Echoing Green and our work, the work of our social entrepreneurs and, and, and the broader conversations around the field of social entrepreneurship. So we have thoroughly um, uh, appreciated this opportunity and I enjoyed our conversation. Thank you, Shell. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Financing Social Entrepreneurs podcast. I hope you found this interview valuable. Please make sure to visit financingsocialentrepreneurs.com and subscribe to make sure you don't miss any future podcasts.